3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is Radiothon time, and I'm here in the studio with Inez and Leela. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be back with all of you. It feels like it's been a long time. Yeah, it's good to have you back in the studio. Um, And speaking of being in the studio, uh, there are so many amazing producers and presenters that are coming into the 3CR studios day in and day out to bring you incredible, radical uh, current affairs, special interest topics, language programs, all sorts of amazing programming across the 3CR schedule. And it is Radiothon time now, and we are trying to raise $275,000 this June to keep the station on air for another year that is keeping us independent, free, and radical for you guys to listen to. And... um, you know, you're all members of the 3CR community if you're listening in, and we really appreciate your support. But if you can afford to, we'd really appreciate a donation as well to keep the station going. So you can donate by calling 03-9419-8377. And you can go to 3CR's website. 3cr.org.au. And when you donate, uh, make sure to nominate the Thursday Breakfast Crew as your favorite show on the station. Uh, All of the donations will go to the same place. It'll all go into that one big fund. Uh, But all of the teams, uh, you know, all the shows have little fundraising targets within that. So don't worry, it's all going to the same place. But do remember to nominate Thursday Breakfast. Yes, also, everything over $2 is tax deductible. So you want to get in some... Some things before the end of financial year, feel free to do so. That's true. Any businesses that are listening to us and need to get stuff off your books, uh, donate to 3CR. Um, all right, so we got a big show as usual. Uh, Inez, do you want to kick it off? Yes. First up, we'll hear a replay from 3CR's very own Ayan from Diaspora Blues. Ayan spoke to Young Health Ambassador Hanina Husna about what to expect when getting a sexual health check, what questions to ask, and takes us on a trip to the doctor's office. Hanina Husna is the from the sexual health care team at Yakvik, which is the Youth Affairs Council, Victoria. That sounds fantastic. I'm really excited to hear that. And after that, we are going to be joined by union and community organizer and member of the Save the Preston Market Action Group, Connor Flynn, to discuss recent concerning developments in the fight to save the Preston market. So we recently had George Cangere on to talk about uh, a win with the planning minister earlier this uh, earlier this year. So Minister for Planning Sonia Kilkenny made an April endorsement of advice from an independent advisory committee to balance protecting the market precinct alongside exploring housing development options. But now, uh, as people will have heard from last week, majority owners Salter Properties have issued a notice to market traders that have just threatened the closure of the precinct in retaliation against the minister's support for significantly amended development plans. So really keen to hear uh, how the fight will progress from here. 
And then we'll be joined by Dr. Marion Mulao-Masalil, who is a Samoan Pacifica ethnographer specializing in oceanic methodologies in service design and is the chair and founding director of Village Response Collective. We will also be joined by Tale Richards, who is a Fijian and Pacifica lawyer, founder, policy specialist and secretary at Village Response Collective. They join us today to talk about how the collective was born, why it's so important to support Pacifica communities. And finally, we'll hear from Isabel Rennick, founder and executive director at Grata Fund. Grata Fund is currently supporting two First Nations leaders, Guda Malagal Men, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, who brought the Australian climate case against the Commonwealth Government of Australia in 2021. The Guda Malagal leaders argue that the Australian Government has failed to prevent climate change and, as a result, have also breached their duty of care to protect Torres Strait Islander people from the harms of the climate crisis. And Isabel joins us to provide progress and updates on the Australian climate case. All right. Well, we got a big show for you as usual, so please stay tuned. We're going right through to 8.30 a.m. and you're on 3CR 855 a.m. Hello listeners, it's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowdraiser at givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 8th of June First Nations listeners, please be advised that the following headline does contain a sensitive topic about First Nations people who have died. The deaths of First Nations people in custody are at an all-time high in Australia, according to a recently released Productivity Commission report on government services. Report data also showed that the number of people who trust the police to act fairly and honestly is at a 10-year low. Advocates say these figures are an indictment of successive government's failure to adequately respond despite multiple state and federal inquiries on these issues. Also in headlines this week, alongside intensifying voice-to-parliament discussions, councils across Zenodith Kez, the Torres Strait Islands, are pushing for regional sovereignty through a treaty with the Queensland government. The Masig Statement, or Malungu Yangu Wake, meaning Voice from the Deep, calls for regional sovereignty in the Torres Strait by 2037. Queensland's Path to Treaty legislation passed last month, setting a framework for agreement-making between the state government and First Nations people. However, Zenodithkez leaders remain concerned the Masig statement was not acknowledged in the legislation. Torres Strait Island Regional Council Mayor Philemon Mosby said his council has endorsed the voice to Parliament but says the Zenodith Kez region has unique issues that need unique solutions. 
In related news, hearings for a groundbreaking climate case will start this week with Gudamalaigal leaders Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai giving evidence of climate harms experienced by Zenedith Kez communities. This case is the first time that anyone in Australia has argued the federal government has a duty to protect people from climate change. In the face of rising sea levels and distressing inaction on climate change, the Gura Malagal leaders have filed the case against the federal government. Hearings will take place on Boigu, Badu and Saibai Islands and in Cairns and will hear evidence from community members and include a tour of the islands to witness climate damage already occurring. The case seeks orders from the court that would require the federal government to take steps to prevent harm, including cutting emissions in line with the best available science. Also in headlines this week, a package of new laws will be proposed to address migrant exploitation in Australia with reports indicating that one in six recent migrants are being paid less than minimum wage. The proposed laws will tackle wage theft, make it a criminal offence to coerce someone into breaching their visa conditions, and increase penalties for employers who exploit migrants. A spokesperson at the Migrant Justice Institute says the reforms could be a game-changer for stopping the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia if they are effectively designed. And finally, in related news on migrant law reform, sex worker advocates are warning that recommendations in an unreleased report on Australia's migration system would see temporary migrants banned from working in the sex industry, something advocates say could present more risks for sex workers on migrant visas. A statement from Scarlet Alliance says that the proposal would divide the sex worker community, giving residents full rights and putting migrants at risk of deportation and detention. They said that the move would undermine decriminalization and law reform efforts at all over the country and increase discrimination against migrant sex workers. Instead of banning migrant sex work, sex worker leaders are calling for safe and accessible migration channels for all workers and access to industrial and workplace rights and protections. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 8th of June and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Hi, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, Black and Deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Uh, join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays. Community Radio, 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. Join us at the Collingwood Neighbourhood House for the launch of the Underground Survival Project Part 5, a zombie film series that began on the Collingwood housing estate over lockdown. The series travels from Collingwood to the desert in South Australia and the most recent episode, The Industrial Wastelands of Upfield. Check out the film, have a feed and raise some cash for our 3CR show Satellite Skies, this Radiothon. 6pm Friday, 9th of June. See you there. Three.
shades of black is where I come from. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Diaspora Blues, the promo is so lovely. Um, and you'll be hearing a replay from very own Ayan from Diaspora Blues, uh, who spoke to the young health ambassador, Anina Husna, about what to expect when getting a sexual health check, what questions to ask, and takes us on a trip to the doctor's office. Hanina Husna is from the sexual health care team at Yakvik, which is the Youth Affairs Council in Victoria. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Hanina. Hi, Ian. Nice to hear from you. So before we look at what to expect when you visit your doctor, let's look at why it's important to even have these conversations. So why is it important to talk about our sexual health? So with the work that I'm currently doing with Yakvik as a young health ambassador, I believe that this kind of conversation is important for young people from the COP community, which are the culturally and linguistically diverse community, um, because there is an intergenerational taboo around sexual health awareness amongst us. And especially coming from migrant and refugee backgrounds to Australia, we haven't been taught how to think critically about the information we consume. Because of that, um, just for young people, I think we are more likely to ask questions that we feel uncomfortable to bring up at home. So in particular with sexual health issues. So instead of getting information from like unverified sources um, with the work that I'm doing, um, we have access to culturally sensitive, age-appropriate and evidence-based informations. Right. And I hope someone who is listening to this today will get something out of it, you know, be able to hear conversations that they um, might not be able to have with family or friends. So let's say you've made an appointment with your GP. What are some items that you should take with you? I would say like just around three to four important items that we need to have with us to get ready before we even attend like doctor appointment. So definitely your Medicare card. Um, if you're over 18, then maybe your insurance um, and then any form of like ID. So it can be your driver license or maybe passport for some other people. And if you're under 18, a, a parent or guardian's permission is definitely um, suggested. Just come with all your other questions. <laughs> I think that's pretty much like the technical stuff of that. Awesome. Okay, so you're... Inside the doctors, um, what can you expect from that visit? Like what kind of questions can you expect your doctor to ask and what can you ask? Before we even know what to ask, I think we also need to know just what our rights are. Mm -hmm. Like when we're seeking for like a doctor appointment, remember that um, we always have like a right to privacy with only like a few exceptions. So there are a lot of things that we discuss with our doctor are kept private between like 
the two of you and the organization that they work for because it's a part of like data patient confidentiality. Other than that, um, informed consent. So your doctor must fully explain your medical issue and treatment options when you're choosing like certain care plan for yourself. Finally, you also like have the right to um, access your own health information as well. So you can request your previous healthcare providers, for example, to transfer over files, or you can request your copies of your test results to be emailed for your personal records. Just knowing that can help like cater to like other things that you might ask your doctors about. And what do you do when a doctor like behaves inappropriately or you feel uncomfortable for whatever reason? Like how do you how do you respond to a situation like that? So um if you're feeling uncomfortable, um with like certain questions that are asked by the doctor, you can definitely be clear about like just putting the boundaries of saying that you're not sure or you're not or you're not wanting to give the answer right at that moment. It's something probably that you can decide or think later about or maybe getting back to like the doctor with the presence of maybe your family or maybe after like a certain discussion. Um, I feel like when you feel unsure about like whether your doctor understands certain sensitive questions mm. to your cultural, spiritual or religious beliefs, I think um, one of the ways that we can also do is just to explain how our health is influenced heavily by these factors that are very important to us. Yeah, sometimes you've been in appointments where the doctor, they might not even be doing it intentionally, but they might not know what your boundaries are or what you feel comfortable discussing. And you kind of feel, you know, intimidated or embarrassed. So yeah, it's good to know that that kind of, uh, those kind of options are available to us. Um, Let's say you don't yeah, want to. Right. Let's say you don't want to go to your doctor. Um, are there other places that you can go to? Because sometimes you know your GP might have known you since you were a kid, and you're like, okay, I don't want them to know my business. Are there other places that you can go to mm-hmm. to get advice about sexual health? One of the services that are um that have like a really wide range of health information and in different languages as well is the website um 1800 my options that's the name of like the website it's i think it's attached to the women's health victoria because um it is a service that connects like for victorian women like no matter where they live like with the information and services they need to optimize their sexual and reproductive healthcare outcomes and like from just the website itself like it gives like specific categories as well for like your needs so you can categorize yourself so for example maybe um if you're a migrant or like a refugee background or even if you're an international student or even just like a general uh, local even there's like very specific service that can be catered to you as well other than that i also know like a service called the multicultural health connect which is um a free helpline for like health information and advice that they can give in your language and they can also like um provide a staff who would understand your culture and link you like a certain gps according to your needs that are suitable for you thanks to hanina husna for that important information like i said visiting your gp is daunting but you know when you have the right information and you have the right support it's not as stressful We'll share all the links that Hanina has discussed on our 3CR page at 3cr.org.au forward slash Diaspora Blues. 
In the meantime, visit 1800myoptions.org.au. That's 1800myoptions.org.au for free and confidential information. You've just heard from 3CR's very own Ayan from Diaspora Blues. And Ayan spoke to young health ambassador Hanina Husna about what to expect when getting a sexual health check, what questions to ask, and takes us on a trip to the doctor's office. Hanina Husna is a sexual health care team, part of the sexual health care team at Yakvik at the Youth Affairs Council in Victoria. You can catch Diaspora Blues every Monday from 2.30 to 3pm on 3CR 855 AM or by visiting www.3cr.org.au forward slash Diaspora Blues. And now, um, for all the lovely romantics in the world, uh, we've got a little song here for you, and it's called Friends With Feelings by Alice Skye.
back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, we just heard Friends with Feelings by Alice Skye. Uh, just a reminder as well, it is Radiothon time and uh, we need to raise $275,000 for our June Radiothon target. Um, and yeah, uh, maybe I'll play us a little sting reminding you how you can donate. And let me find that. Okay, there it is. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And an extra little reminder, uh, we all have our own little target allocations as 3CR shows. So when you do donate to our Radiothon fundraiser, don't forget to nominate Thursday Breakfast as your favorite show that you'd like that donation to go under. It's all going to the same place, uh, but you'll help us reach our target and we'd really appreciate that. And now we are joined by union and community organizer and member of the Save the Preston Market Action Group, Connor Flynn, to discuss recent concerning developments in the fight to save the Preston Market. Despite Minister for Planning Sonia Kilkenny's April endorsement of advice from an independent advisory committee to balance protecting the market precinct alongside exploring housing development options, majority owners Salta Properties last week issued a notice to market traders threatening the closure of the precinct in retaliation against the minister's support for significantly amended development plans. Good morning, Connor. Good morning. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us in studio. Um, And also, as a fellow Preston resident. Shouts out to Preston. Um, So I thought I might begin by asking you to summarize some of the recent developments in the Preston market fight and the community concerns that this is raised. So it seems that Salta are continuing to attempt to leverage sympathy for the traders, but now through a new route. And 
still while being the ones that are putting their livelihoods at risk because as we saw, you know, that uh, that notice about the uh, proposed closure of the Preston market and um, failure to renew leases was issued to the traders, which then caused uh, a bit of a media storm early last week. Well, last in early this month, um, Salter literally put a gun to the heads of the entire Preston community in the Preston market by saying, you know what, we're fed up with this process and if we don't get what we want, we will close down this market entirely. I mean, Salter have been forced into a position where they're unable to generate billions of profits from a highly valuable site. And the only reason this has happened this year is because the community has fought back. This year, the community has forced the Standing Advisory Committee to actually say, no, you can't actually knock down the Preston market. And that was only a result of lobbying from the community, but also in the electoral space where the Labor Party almost lost that seat on the basis of the position to save the Preston market. Um, local independent councillor Gaetano Greco almost won the seat on that issue. Victorian socialists also polled incredibly well. And a series of direct actions against the local Labor MP, also actions outside the planning minister, Sonia Kilkenny, and Salter's offices in Collins Street itself have forced um, the government to say, okay, um, we are forced to introduce a heritage overlay, but what that means is still entirely up for grabs. And now Salter is saying, okay, um, if we don't get what we want, we will use our bully boy tactics, which they're renowned for, um, to threaten the heart of the community. Yeah, and I mean, the way that they're sort of positioning the fight to save the market is very much... Uh, you know, stating that it's a very small group of people that are pushing back, that there's not broad community support, um, but also that they, um, they're they talking about housing development as, uh, you know, part of the housing crisis. So can you take us through more of the details uh, of Save the Preston Market's uh, public acquisition proposal and how the retention of the market is being pitted against housing development in the midst of the current housing crisis? Well, if the state government actually purchased and publicly acquired the site, then the community could decide how that site is actually used. For instance, the entire framework of the market could remain. Darabin Council have alternate proposals which have a heavy emphasis on, you know, rather than 20-storey towers which Salter wants to build, a combination of five to seven-storey towers around the market with a heavy emphasis on public housing. As we know, public housing is totally inadequate across the state and across the country. Daniel Andrews' big build, the Albanese government's programs are totally inadequate and a council have advocated that if there is to be development on the Preston Market site, then there has to be affordable, low-cost housing. Um, Salter, whereas they want to propose up to 2,200 apartments, which would just be dirt boxes, which nobody can afford, especially in a cost-of-living crisis, and that would totally transform the entire framework of Preston and the entire northern suburbs community. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the the sort of transformation of uh, demographics that this will cause is, is a big thing, you know, like uh, there is, uh, I guess, a reticence by developers to refer to builds as potentially luxury builds. Um, but it does seem that if there is this large development with a very small proportion that I'm sure is uh, up for a lot of or has a lot of wiggle room about affordable housing within that with affordable itself being quite arbitrarily defined um it doesn't really bring a lot of certainty to the demographic of people that use the preston market absolutely and i think salter they say it's a small vocal minority but you know at a mass meeting at preston shire hall last month we presented a local labor mp with tens of thousands of signatures 
earlier this year, we went to the steps of Parliament um, and both the Planning Minister and the local Labor MP refused to meet with us. Um, as we know that planning in the city is inherently political and um, the Victorian Planning Authority initially wanted to um, acquiesce to Salter's demands and to knock down the market and to build 2,200 apartments. Um, yeah, no, it's... Um I mean, I think it is also sort of disingenuous to, to pit it against that because, as you said, um, if there is a public acquisition of the market, then it is sort of up to the council and community to then decide how that space is used. And um, I was wondering on that if you could speak to the importance of not just retaining but revitalizing the site um, because Salta has let it fall into disrepair over the past few years with the plan that there would be this redevelopment. But now that that's been stopped in its tracks, uh, there's the threat to just close the, mar- the the threat to just close the market outright. And so, you know, for people that use the Preston market regularly, like myself, um, you can see that you know people are trading in there. But uh, you know, there's a lot of concerns about amenities and about um, you know the state that the market is in at the moment, even though it is still a very vibrant and really important community space. So. Um, Salta are saying that replication of the market, which they intend to do, is pushing it to the eastern edge of the market precinct, um, where they will then have their 2,200 build uh, apartment build in the middle, uh, will cause less of a disruption than renovation. But I was wondering if you could take us through that argument. You know, Salta purchased the site in 2004 for a swindle of $36 million, which adjusted to inflation is roughly about $57 million. Obviously, given the vital importance of Preston in terms of the anarchy of planning in the city, Salter's long-term perspective has never been to protect and defend the Preston market. Sure, they've been on the record saying, yes, we can revitalise the market, we can retain the market, um, and we can build and we can build and we can extend and protect the market as we go along. There's articles in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age dating back to 2015 and 2016 where Sam Tarasco has said that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's um, it seems very much that um, there was a long a long game of investment and redevelopment on the on the cards, and now that that now there's been a bit of a, a rug pull with this heritage overlay consideration. Um, Salter properties are kind of have been forced into a corner, and now have made this decision. Um, so I'm wondering. You know, at this stage, the way that um, mainstream media have kind of framed it and also the way that Salter Properties have, uh, you know, issued this ultimatum to the traders, it seems like the decision is, is already made and the, the fight is over. But I understand that, of course, Save the Preston Market are going to keep going. So what is next for the campaign and how will you be responding to this? You know, as John Farnham, when he was part of the Little River Band in I Today 2, said, he said, we're playing to win. Um, and the only way to defend and protect urban space. There's countless examples throughout history. You know, the Builders Labourers Federation did it the right way with green bands and direct community action. Um, We know that iconic sites in this city, including the Queen Victoria Market, the Carlton Baths, um, the Regent Theatre in Sydney, you've got the Rocks and a number of other strategies as well. The only way that we can ensure that, as Lefebvre said, have a right to the city in whose interests our communities built for, they're not for profits, they're for people, is for actually to engage in forms of direct action and community pickets to protect this valuable site, which means so much to so many people. Um, as we know, that um, 
there's countless examples in this city in this last decade of where people banded together to stop the east-west tunnel put the bodies on the line to stop um, preliminary drilling and it forced the government and a multi-billion dollar company to back down we saw similar examples in footscray park a few years ago and there's even more contemporary examples of the cfmu engaging in green bands to protect green space in yarraville that's the only way forward now all the avenues which we've gone through whether it's been standing advisory committees or the electoral space politics is rigged for the rich and for developers like salter the only thing that will save us is ourselves and that's the only way that we can save the Preston market. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess I wanted to also ask about uh, what the relationship has been like with the traders, especially since they've gotten this news. I know I'm springing this question on you a bit, but um, I, I, you know, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that and, and how the traders have sort of been feeling about this. You know, a lot of people, there's a climate of fear. Like there's some more vocal traders who have close ties to Salter who are speaking up and they're getting a lot of time in the media, but there's a lot of people who are scared, they're frightened and they're anxious. They're not sure what the future holds for them. Um, and a few of us, a few of them have said to the campaign that we're very frightened. Um, we're not sure what this means for our future. Um, a few others have been more vocal, um, but they're not willing to critique um, Preston market developers because they're afraid the lease will be terminated. And like we say, the only way to ensure that traders have a vibrant future at the Preston market is through public acquisition. That will provide job security in you know a cost of living crisis, which all of us are facing. Um, that's the only way to do it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, something, you know, one of the one of the kind of elephants in the room, which hasn't really been discussed as well in mainstream media, is that it's a huge hub for culturally and, culturally and linguistically diverse communities. You know, like Vietnamese community, Greek community, Italian community. There are so many, um, you know, so many uh, different multilingual communities that use this space um, as a space to connect, and particularly for elderly residents of the area to be able to connect with people that they can speak with in the same language. So, um, you know, a plan to uh, redevelop the entire site and shift off the, the market will mean that, you know, those traders that can't necessarily afford, uh, you know, afford to wait um, for this uh, relocation of the market to the eastern edge of the property, as Salta has proposed, uh, we'll, we'll have to close down or move elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I guess, is there anything else that you wanted to add? I mean, if you want to get involved in the campaign to save the press of the market, we've got a Facebook page, we've got an Instagram page, we've got a Twitter account as well. And we usually hold meetings um, every second Thursday, so just reach out to us if you want to get involved in the campaign. But you're absolutely right about Preston Market is a melting pot of so many diverse communities in Melbourne. The market itself was set up by Polish migrants in the late 1960s. And one of my favourite things to do at the market, and this is a shout-out to Tammy's Barek. They look after me very well. Great Bareks and a double espresso. But one of my favourite things to do there is just to people watch. You sit on the, in the in the plaza and you just admire as you know elderly pensioners have cheap cigarettes they laugh they share war stories and you know what we don't want another northland in the city we don't want another high point even though they do have its own certain charm but yeah it's the very heart of the northern suburbs is on the line and we've got to fight for it
Absolutely. And I guess one final thing that I'll, I'll add on that as well is that so many public spaces are being closed down and there's more and more sort of pay to play kind of accesses to pub, like access to public space where, you know, if you want to go into a shopping center, security is going to move you along. Uh, whereas if you want to sit there, not spend any money, but just sort of hang out in a community space, um, Preston Market does provide that option. It's funny you mentioned that. A friend of mine was canvassing for the campaign. Um, shout out to Jerem Smolk here. And Sam Tarascio actually told him to move him on. He was handing out leaflets to build for our public meeting and said, this is my public property. And he had the audacity to say to my friend that your campaign is going to lose. We have a message to Sam Tarascio here right now. You're going to lose. The state government is going to lose. Amazing. Thank you so much, Connor. And, um, you know, keep up the good fight. Uh, I definitely support it and encourage people to, uh, you know, follow the Save the Preston Market campaign, get involved, and we'll have all of those links and information in our show notes. So thank you so much, Connor. Oh, thanks for having me and support the Radiothon. Hello, listeners. It's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR, and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowdraiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast and make sure to specify thursday breakfast with your donation stay tuned and stay radical this june on 3cr 855 am accented women it seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives accented women what's a border they don't see it like a big wall right along the how can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR.
And that was Dewi by Kamang. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And it is 7.45 in the morning. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au.
and that was Anda Katakan by Melati ESP. Support Prampon in music. Okay, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Stay tuned, stay radical. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. 
Hello, listeners. It's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR, and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowdraiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. And now we'll be joined by Dr. Marian Mula Masa Ali, who is a Samoan Pacifica ethnographer specializing in oceanic methodologies in service design and is the chair and founding director of Village Response Collective. We'll also be joined by Tale Richards, who is a Fijian and Pacifica lawyer, former lawyer, founder, policy specialist and secretary at Village Response Collective. They joined us today to talk about how the Village Response Collective was born and why it's so important to support Pacifica communities. Thanks so much for joining us here today, both of you. Great. Thanks Sama for having us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, could we start uh, start off by, you know, why the Village Response Collective was started and who was involved? Maybe I'll start off with you, Marion. Yeah, sure. I uh, just want to acknowledge, though, that um, the land, we met on unceded lands this morning. We live and play on lands that belong to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, always has been and will be. Um, and just really want to acknowledge the Samoan Pacific well, as a Samoan, I acknowledge our people that listen in, support and help with the fundraising. And, of course, our Oceanic uh, brothers and sisters that are of Victoria. Um, so VRC was created, uh, a group of amazing uh, Pacifica wahine. Um, obviously, Tale, we have Lesa, Debole, Wali, Rita Sil, Manutafa, Palala, uh, and Wikitaurua. Uh, we all come from um, different islands of, of Oceania, and we saw a need that there was no one uh, specific body to connect with our communities. Uh, we bonded over a project that saw the need for a village response. Um, and, yeah, we were like, you know what, let's get together, let's use our skills and uh, connect with our people. And I'm um, pretty sure Tale has some more to add to that. Um, but, yeah, that's the gist of it. Amazing. Thank you so much. Tali, uh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, look, I was just going to say, I, I, thank you, Marion, for the um, acknowledgement. And I, I support everything that uh, Marion said there. But in relation to the VRC starting, it was also really because we saw a gap between how government in particular was engaging or really not engaging well with our communities and that there was a need for that platform to act as a safe, um, I suppose, buffer between the two and encourage better relationships. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that for both of you. And I think what um, is really inspiring, I think, about the organisation is you've been able to create such a meaningful organisation, which is already such a feat, um, particularly in terms of like setting up governance and, you know, policies and registrations. Uh, Could you maybe talk about how did the org, you know, really fuel the intense passion people have when they want to start an organisation into purposeful, meaningful action and a stable Organization, maybe starting with you, Tali? 
Yeah, thanks, Inez. That's a great question. Um, we talk about that constantly, don't we, Marion? Um, yeah. <laughs> just the idea of, of being able to safely transition passion and um, intention into something that's going to be a sustainable, uh, viable organisational option that's kind of compliant as well as active, you know, maintaining a profile. So, you know, for us, the key part for it was to have strong relationships amongst the group and that takes time. And so we were fortunate that we've been able to invest a bit of time in that. But, you know, there is constant pressure financially to be able to do that and give it the time that it needs. You know, our, our Pacifica heritage and Oceanic heritage is about relationships, you know, and, you know, trying to do that in a country like this where systems, you know, dictate really different ways of working is really tough. So we're navigating that really carefully at the moment and reaching out to people that we can trust to support our vision, but also taking it really slowly and, and trying to make sure that we're ticking all the boxes that need to be ticked whilst building our own relationship. Yeah, it sounds like it's really important and everything that comes down to often is relationship building and capacity and it's hard to toe the line between like legislation and compliance and really making um, an organisation that is important and is filling a gap of something um, that really is needed. Um, Marion, what uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that about how like you fueled passion into an organisation? Yeah, totally agree with what my sister Tale has said. I, I just want to say um, that, that the gap we're filling is recognising um, the need for Indigenous uh, approaches. Mm. And so we also advocate and obviously stand with our brothers and sisters of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in, in Australia. So recognising um, that the pathway they're taking, it's been a hard road. So, you know, in terms of setting up, uh, we, we knew it was going to be difficult, um, but we recognised that a village approach, which is very Pacifica Oceania, is needed when working with our communities and what's what we advocate in the space of government. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, really important to acknowledge the solidarity between Pacifica communities and, you know, First Nations people here. And also in terms of, like, creating a collective, I think... From the outside looking in, it can seem like something that is so unfathomable or that is really hard to create and sustain. Um, what what are some, I guess, some advice or things that you wish you would have known when you were creating a collective? Maybe starting off with you, Marion. Um, I think, you know, we come with a lot of experience. Um, so there's a couple of us who have either set things up or been a part of something, and I think the key learning thing for me, I guess for me personally, um, is patience. It's really just having patience. Like I've seen where in my own life where we have to grow something and start something, whether it's a business or to put an organisation, but when it's your own and you've come together with like-minded individuals, it's really having the patience and um, just, again, it's about relationships and it's, it's trying to balance between our village approach of togetherness and we go together and we are only as strong as our team member. You know, where in the Western world it's like, be the CEO or be the and lead. Yes, we have that as well, but coming together. So it's definitely a new approach in terms of a Western, being in a Western society, but something that we know that our ancestors thrived on, and that's what we're bringing. We're, I guess, hybrid of Western education and experience with our Pacifica cultural heritage. 
Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. And Tali, did you have, you know, something to add about like what you really wish you would have known when you're creating an organization? Keeping in mind that I know Marion and yourself have, you know, really done the groundwork, as you said. Yeah, oh, look, I think exactly agree with everything Marion's saying. The other thing too is, you know, don't make assumptions. Like we, we've worked really hard to not just get to know each other, but unpack what our experiences are and how we work together and try and forge a new way of working that's safe for us, but also try and set a, set a template if we can for other organisations that might be interested as well. Yeah, I think it's really wonderful to be able to create a framework um, where people can look to and feel inspired from. Um, and speaking of inspiration, <laughs> um, could you tell us more about the work that you do or you know what you have done uh, at this point in time, maybe starting off with you, Marion? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're, we're leveraging off a lot of the documents that we created um, called the Village Response Plan and the Reintegration Pathway. Uh, so we are in the justice space because there's such a need for that. And through that, we um, just delivered the Pacifica Roundtable, an inaugural event where we saw um, 80 members of community, Pacific community and government leaders come together to have a discussion about how we could better serve our communities. And so it's been a real piece of uh, work where we can really advocate. And again, like um, you, as you mentioned, our qualification that's really using that to really influence policy, change policy uh, in regards to uh, minority groups, especially in Pacifica. And again, of course, um, we continue to place uh, stand in solidarity with our Indigenous tools. Also say that, you know, if you're not doing it for them, then why would you do it for us? And so we're also advocating along that, those lines. Um, but, yeah, I know, Talo, you've got, we just had a, a, an amazing um, time yesterday at the women's event, and I think that's a portfolio that we're growing. So happy for her to talk about that and what's coming up for us. Yeah, um, look, I think what Marion was saying, I think our big inspiration is our communities, you know, really wanting to make sure that we're opening the door for their voices. I think after two years of COVID where they attended numerous consultations and shared their their voices and told the government what was happening on the ground and to not have a lot of that come back to them, I think has really hurt, uh, hurt the communities and there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. So we want to make sure that that happens as safely and as quickly as possible. But in relation to the women's um, kind of work that we're building as well, you know, we attended a conference that was, you know, in many ways targeting Pacific Oceanic women. And, you know, we have a real vision about what we want to say at those um, forums and making sure that the women's voices who aren't often heard do have a place in those kind of platforms. And, you know, to date, I haven't really witnessed that. So we're hoping to really build that sort of agenda as well. But do that that's led by the women that we work with, not by other people. No, absolutely. Um, being able to, you know, provide a collective voice is so important and knowing that there is power in numbers. And I think what I really um, relate to and I feel like a lot of our listeners will relate to is knowing that, you know, you have you know, the Western qualifications that kind of get you the piece of paper and the experience, um, but being able to find community in each other um, and, you know, really lean on what you as Pacifica, you know, people know and bringing that together to create something really important and new and toe the line between, um, yeah, like legislation and governance versus what we really also want to do. Um, 
Is there anything that you are like particularly really excited for uh, coming up? I know there's so much um, that you probably want to make and create. Um, maybe starting off with you, Marion. Yeah, um, just to mention that we, I, I'm excited about um, Pacific communities, Oceania communities coming together for an action plan. Uh, mm. It's one of the key things that we really wanted to push that uh, we want to ensure that we are recognising policy. The uh, African community has the African Community Action Plan, and we love that. It's the recognition uh, of their communities and how uh, government have a direct point of contact with them, but not just one person or one people group. It's like a whole community, and they have a... Um, a board, uh, they have a, a working committee. So that's what we want to set up. Um, and then also the hub, um, yeah, there, there's, we're wanting to set up our, uh, a speaker one-stop shop for community to come through in government where we can all come together and have a, create a safe space. Uh, just there's, there's so much, there's such, such a need for it. Um, our community don't know who to talk to or they feel like government or the agencies who are who may be well-meaning but just don't have the tools to connect with our people. So we see ourselves as um, the go-between. We see ourselves as a conduit um, to support them and also empower them in what they're doing. Yeah, amazing. Uh, that's so many things to look forward to. And, you know, being able to provide a space where, you know, if people don't know where to go, this is the place to go. And I think that's really, really wonderful. Um, Tali, did you? Is there anything that you're particularly excited for with the collective? Yeah, no, both of those things. But, but, but absolutely, Marion tied it up beautifully. Okay, wonderful. Um, lastly, could you let us know where to find out more about your work? And also, I guess in a, a tandem question, how can others support and advocate for Pacifica and Oceanic communities? Maybe starting off with you, Tali. Yeah, great. So um, we're currently building our website, so we'll be releasing that fairly soon. But at the moment, you can follow us on Instagram, um, Village Response Collective, um, with a really cool logo designed um, uh, and put together by our media advisor, Deb Wally. Um, otherwise, at the moment, we're starting fairly slowly with the kind of social and media comms and just trying to sort of build the house before we... Um, start too much promotion but Instagram is probably the easiest way of finding us um, and of course you know I think um, I'm not sure if we shared uh, our email details and stuff like that but I think that's all on our Instagram page as well. Yeah amazing thank you so much. Um, Marion what about you do, is there um, anything that you really hope other people will do in terms of the like supporting the collective as well as like Pacifica and Oceanic communities? Yeah um, just reach out just follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you know, have any questions and uh, just recognise that if you uh, are not, you're not sure about anything that's coming through government, anything you're hearing on the news to do uh, with your family or our communities, just, just reach out to us. We may be able to help. We may be. Mm. We may know about that. We're um, we're doing a lot of networking, especially since the roundtable. We've had a lot of government reach out to us and other community organisations, um, the CBOs that are out there who are doing it hard, who just 
doing stuff from their own pockets. We really want to connect with you all uh, because one of the key things we recognise is that uh, community organisations or families who are doing things to help other families actually can get funding, uh, maybe afraid of, like, I don't know how to set up. We can help you with that. Maybe you don't need to be set up. We can partner you with another organisation or partner with us. So it's really just about let's connect, let's find out what's happening, have a cup of tea, and, um, yeah, we'll just go from there. Amazing. Thank you so much for both of you. It was such an important and vital interview and I'm really excited to see where the collective goes. But hope you have a really wonderful day, Marion and Tali. You Thank too, you. Thanks so much. You too. Bye. Bye. You've just heard an interview with Dr. Marion Muli Al Masali. Um, who is a Samoan Pacifica ethnographer specialising in oceanic methodologies in service design and is the chair and founding director of Village Response Collective. We were also joined by Tale Richards, a Fijian and Pacifica former lawyer, current founder, policy specialist and secretary at Village Response Collective. They joined us today to speak about how the collective was born, why it's so important to support Pacifica and oceanic communities. Salam be hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. Left after breakfast, 38 years of information, insights, analysis and opinion. Just plain old common sense, really. 8.30am on Fridays. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. In 2021, two First Nations leaders, Guda Malaygal Men, Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai, 
brought the Australian climate case against the Commonwealth Government. The Gura Malagal leaders argue that the Australian government has failed to prevent climate change and, as a result, have also breached their duty of care to protect Torres Strait Islander people from the harm of the climate crisis. Today, we're going to hear from Isabel Renecki, founder and executive director at Grata Fund. Grata Fund is Australia's first non-profit litigation incubator with a focus on cases and campaigns that have the potential to break systemic gridlocks across human rights, climate action and democratic freedoms. Isabel, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Isabel. Can you hear me? Um, We're having some technical difficulties. Give us a moment and we'll be right back to you. Hello, listeners. It's Priya and Inez from 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We love making breakfast radio as much as you love hearing it. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR, and this year we need to raise $275,000 to keep the station going. Please ship in during our appeal week from the 5th to the 18th of June. You can donate by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or by ringing the station on 03-9419-8377. You can also donate to our crowd raiser at givenow.com.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast. And make sure to specify Thursday breakfast with your donation. Stay tuned and stay radical this June on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Isabel. Can you hear us? Um, Unfortunately, we're probably going to have to try Isabel by phone. So bear with us for another moment. We'll be right back. Join us at the Collingwood Neighbourhood House for the launch of the Underground Survival Project Part 5, a zombie film series that began on the Collingwood housing estate over lockdown. The series travels from Collingwood to the desert in South Australia and the most recent episode, The Industrial Wastelands of Upfield. Check out the film, have a feed and raise some cash for our 3CR show Satellite Skies, this Radiothon. 6pm Friday, 9th of June. See you there. Shades of black is where I come from.
Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And we're back on 3CR, joined by Isabel Reinecki to talk about the Australian climate case. Now, we did have some technical issues, which means we might have to cut it a bit short, but we can cover whatever we don't get to another week, hopefully. Um, good morning, Isabel. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Um, we better get right into it. So can you briefly break down the Australian climate case against the Com- Commonwealth Government? How did this case come to be and what is its basis? This case is being brought by two Gunnamulgul men in the Torres Strait, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, and their communities in the outer islands of the Torres Strait, uh, Saibai and Boigu. Uh, this case came about because the communities here in the Torres Strait are just really passionate about protecting their homelands, their culture, their lands and seas from the impacts of climate change that are being caused by the Australian government. And so what they've decided to do is sue the Australian government in a class action, basically arguing that the government has a duty of care to protect Torres Strait Islander people, way of life, lands and seas due to something called the Torres Strait Treaty that was signed by the Australian government with Papua New Guinea in the 70s. They also argue that Australia is causing climate change. We know that Australia is. It's party to the Paris Agreement, which in which the Australian government agrees that it is causing climate change and has responsibility to, to fix it. Um, and then what we really say and what the uncles are saying in court is that the court needs to order the government to stop causing the climate harm and in order to protect the Torres Strait from further climate catastrophe. Thanks for that um, background. So we know that they're bringing a case on the basis that the government is not um, preventing these harms. Would you be able to explain what are these central concerns brought by Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai? What are the actual lived harms that are happening right now that have motivated um, this case? You can speak to anybody on the ground in the Torres Strait, particularly in Saibai and Boigu Islands, and they'll be able to tell you in great detail the changes that they've seen in their lifetimes and how those changes really um, have both happened more rapidly but also are very different to the, the cultural 
knowledge and history that has been passed on from generation to generation. So that means literally the size of the islands that they live on are shrinking. Um, the waters have risen such that beaches that used to be much wider are now quite shallow and quite narrow. Um, there are seawalls that have been built, new seawalls, but they're already being breached by king tides. Um, land that has been used to grow food that we, which people eat and sell and trade with Papua New Guinea in particular um, are now not able to grow crops due to uh, saltwater acidification, which is happening when the king tides come and lay a lot of cold salt, salt water across the, the ground, one that when the waters recede, salt stays in the ground and makes it impossible to grow crops. Um, there's been really horrible uh, stories and instances that the court has witnessed this week, including um, grave sites being washed into the sea. Um, so ancestors' bones have been lost to the sea, which is obviously extremely traumatic. People are also really concerned about what long-term their future looks like for their children and their grandchildren, whether they'll be able to stay on the island, where they'll go if they have to go, but also what that actually will mean for culture and connection to country. This is a culture that's really deeply embedded in place and to be actually removed from the land and not able to practice culture in place is going to be absolutely devastating and what the uncles describe as a cultural genocide. Yeah, this is, it's really devastating and some urgent issues that have been recognised by First Nations people, it seems, centrally due to this deep connection and relationship to land. So it's really important that some of these hearings are now happening on country um, where witnesses can, you know, be on country and show what is happening directly uh, they These hearings started the 6th of June uh, and are now underway in Boigu, Badu and Sabai Islands, as well as in Cairns. Can you tell us a few parts of the key evidence that has been brought by witnesses over the past two days? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you say, being on country is just con completely transformative for a case like this. It's very hard to understand the impacts until you're here. You can kind of, you know understand them mentally, I suppose, but really understanding through sitting with people and talking with people and really visibly seeing the impacts on their life and how important that that is, is extraordinarily moving and I hope has had an impact on the judge. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the evidence that the judge has seen over the past couple of days have included traditional sites, including the Tree of Skulls and Tree of Spies uh, in Boigu Island. Um, the judge has been shown the seawall where water's breached. The judge has been taken around to the southern beaches of Boigu by a dinghy and banana boat to see um, how those campsites have also been affected by increasing water levels, um, as well as to traditional ceremonial burial sites. Um, that really looks like the judge in a pair of shorts and a, and a short sleeve shirt um, and a big hat <laughs> walking around the islands and, and sitting and hearing from um, community members. We also had a beautiful experience because the kids came down from school and sat on mats and, and watched the proceedings as well. So it's really an important moment for communities um, to be heard and to have their power really listened to and, and their knowledge respected. Yeah, it sounds really important that that's happening outside of a courtroom. Um, if this case is successful, what changes might we expect to see implemented as a result? This case is really the be-all and end-all of climate litigation. If it is successful at the highest order, it will permanently change Australia's approach to climate. 
change. So what that means is that the court could order the government to stop causing climate change harm in the Torres Strait. And the way that the government can stop causing harm in the Torres Strait is by adopting emissions reduction targets that are in line with the best available science. So what we've got in Australia right now is emissions reduction targets of 43% reduction by 2030. But actually what we need, according to the science, is a 75% reduction in emissions by that same date, by 2030. People may have also heard of net zero by, by 2050, and that was legislated by the former government. And what we've actually needed based on the science and what the Torres Strait needs based on the science is, is net zero by 2035. So that's really the, the overarching highest order goal of the case, and that's the only real way that we will be able to stop the harm spinning out of control in the Torres Strait and lead to absolute devastation. Um, at, a, at another order, what we've actually got is be, before we get to that, but if we don't get to that point of, of that ultimate goal of just stopping the, the, the climate getting worse by stopping pollution, there are also needs for the Australian government to actually put in place measures to protect people today, so better seawalls, um, disaster relief services and so on, um, to make sure that people are actually safe while the climate is at its point now and before it spins further out of control. Right, so this is a groundbreaking case that is really going to impact everyone globally and nationally. Um, thank right. you so it's much. Really... For... <laughs> thank Sorry. you so much for no, joining right. us That was right, it's amazing. Yeah, it's one, it's, of those, it's one of those cases where, again, you know, Torres Strait Islanders have led for Australia um, for a long time through Marbo's famous decision case, but also, you know, they, they do active biosecurity work every single day here in the Torres Strait, protecting the mainland from, you know, hazards that can come across from international waters. So, you know, they really are leaders for the whole country and, yeah, I'm very grateful to be able to work with them. Yeah, that's right. I think this is a good moment to recognise um, the strong lineage of First Nations leadership in human rights and climate litigation that has really shaped the legal um, climate that we have today. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have to wrap it up there. I'm sure we could keep talking all morning about this. <laughs> no problem. Um, But thank you so much, Isabel, and we'll put some links in our podcast as to how listeners can support the Australian climate case. Thank you so much for joining us. Check out australianclimatecase.org.au. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. We just heard from Isabel Reinecki on the Australian climate case. This case was brought brought by two First Nations leaders, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, against the Australian Commonwealth Government. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And that is about all we have time for on today's show. And just a quick plug again for Radiothon. It's Radiothon time uh, all June, and we are trying to raise $275,000 to keep the station on air for another year. An independent, radical, and incredible community. And we really appreciate all of your support. If you can afford to donate, please head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate, or you can donate by calling the station on 03. 
800-943-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. And don't forget to nominate Thursday Breakfast in your donation. Um, We love coming on every week and sharing radical current affairs, news and views with you. And we just really encourage you to chip in to keep the station going. We love doing this work. And I know you guys love listening to us. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much and goodbye, everyone. See ya. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.